Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. Another very special guest, as every show we have a very special guest, but this is a, a, someone I've, I've known for, I, I met him originally, I think it was around 2006 or 2007. He was refing an MMA fight in Fargo, North Dakota that I was judging and, and uh, got to chat with him quite a, quite a bit that night and kind of stayed in contact over the years through social media. The first time I've seen him now in about 15 years and a name that uh, is kind of synonymous with the world of, of mixed martial arts, kind of legendary, as some might say. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to uh, Mr. Fred Edish today. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great. Thank you very much. So let's just kind of start now. A lot of people, of course, heard, heard of you because of UFC. You were one of the pioneers in, in MMA back in the day. But let's go back even further, uh, kind of your beginning in martial arts, maybe even before you started taking lessons. Was there something you saw? Was there a movie you saw, a TV show, something? Did you have a friend doing it? What? what, what where would that initial spark come from that gave you the interest in martial arts? Well, because I'm as old as I am, I go way back, and it was back in the 60s. 60s and martial arts were still really new uh, and there was a lot of mystery surrounding them and uh, a lot of unknown. I looked at it as a way to quit getting my ass kicked. <laughs> and that's I think a lot of people start for that reason and uh, I was a I was a skinny little little kid uh, in the shadow of the big city of New York. I lived just across the border in a town called Norwalk, Connecticut, and uh, I knew that there was martial arts around and I knew I was tired of being scared all the time and I thought, well, hey, maybe this will make me tough. And um, so I ended up in a class that was taught by uh, an individual who my brother at the time knew. And uh, it was a private class. So you had to know somebody to get you in the door. And so my brother put in a, a word for me, got me in the door. And, and that's how I got started. Um, looking back, I know that the gentleman who was teaching it was not what he said he was. <laughs> but back in those days, there was, of course, no internet. There was no way to check anything out. And uh, being, I was probably 12 or 13 years old, anybody that was in their 20s, like this guy was, walked on water, didn't even get the bottoms of their feet wet. And uh, so he, he said he was an eighth degree black belt and he had uh, rankings in Kung Fu as well. And he was, he was, you know, looked from the outside looking in through young eyes, he looked like he was very good. And um, so obviously that wasn't true, and I know that now. But I will say that he taught a good class and he set a real good foundation for me. We worked really hard. Uh, we, we did basics. We did some kata. We did a lot of sparring. And uh, that set a real good foundation for me. So I'm, I'm really in his debt, even though, like I say, I know that you know, his claims were not legitimate. Uh, his class was legitimate, if that makes any sense. What style was that? It was a Chinese Kempo style. Okay. I don't know the exact name of it, but it, it was, uh, it was uh, as far as I can remember, it was a Chinese Kempo. Uh, sadly, martial arts does tend to draw, it seems, more than its share of snake oil salesmen, hucksters, you know, people who 
hide behind cloaks of mystery and uh, I'm too deadly, I can't show you this. <laughs> or I learned from this secret master on an island somewhere and nobody would know who he was, but he was great. And, you know, It's a little harder to get away with that nowadays because you have to prove who you are. And I think MMA has done a lot for that. Jiu-Jitsu has done a lot for that because... Yep. In sports like that, which are related to martial arts, you have to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. You can't hide on the mat. Exactly. Uh, on the mat, the truth comes out. And uh, so if you're, if you're not real, you'll get exposed. So uh, I think in this day and age, people now, even if they're not involved in MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or one of the direct contact sports wrestling, I got to throw that in there too because yes. there's very few people in the world that are tougher than a good wrestler. They, they have taught people to look into things more and to not just believe things on face value. If you say you can do something, if you say you are something, they're going to want to see what you are. I like that, though. The truth comes out on the mat. That would, that would make a great T-shirt. Yeah. That, that, well, let's let's market that. <laughs> there we go. That's some good marketing. My, my, my Okinawan karate teacher used to always tell us, too. He said, if you don't sweat, you don't learn. And he would also say, shut up and train, which <laughs> was directed at a lot of people who were, like we were saying, that like to talk a lot but didn't like to do a lot. Yep. And it drove him crazy when he would come to the States and see that. So... You know, that, that that's good advice for anybody. Shut up and train. So now that age 12, 13, how long did you stay with that first instructor before you looked for something else? Well, uh, it was uh, probably between a year and two years. And then I didn't really have a choice. I ended up, my family uh, situation was very bad. Um, my, my, I was living with my dad. My mom was off with uh, what became, I guess, technically my stepfather, but I don't want to give him that kind of credit because he was a piece of human garbage. And I ended up following them uh, first out to the middle of nowhere, Montana. (laughs) And I am serious. Uh, That was probably 1970-ish, somewhere in there. And I went from, like I said, living in the suburbs, in the shadow of New York City, to the closest town was a little town called Lavina, Montana, Lavina. And it was in between Billings and the big city of Roundup. <laughs> and Roundup had, and they were very proud of this, they had a hanging tree in town that wow. had been used as recently as sometime in the 40s. And they were really proud of that. Uh, we lived in a four-room shack, literally, with no electricity at the very end of a road. And to call it a road was giving it the benefit of the doubt. It was basically the last mile or so was two tire tracks through an alfalfa field. Um, so, of course, no running water. Had to pump water by hand for the house. We had another well for the livestock that had a three-horse Briggs and Stratton hooked up to it. And uh, so it, it, was, it was culture shock. And, of course, out there, there was no martial arts. Uh, there was a lot of hay bales. And uh, so nice. I found out really quickly that, you know, thinking that I was a pretty tough city kid, <laughs> come to find out that, uh, man, I didn't know Jack. Because these kids, uh, I ran my mouth a little bit. I was a punk, and these kids tolerated it for just a little bit, and then they got sick of my crap. And uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, we were out in, uh, in Phi Ed class, and we were playing soccer, and it was warm out still. And this one kid took his shirt off. His name was Randy Lewis. They called him Louie. And he was skinny as a rail. And I laughed at him because he was so skinny. And this other kid that came there from Texas, he said, 
better be careful. Louie's a lot tougher than he looks. <laughs> and Louie proceeded to show me. He took me down and turned me inside out and upside down and every which way but loose. And I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. But as I started to live out there, I saw all the work that these guys throw in hay bales, firewood. Everything was with their hands. And the hardest work I did in the city was pushing a lawnmower. And I thought that was really tough. And I you know, didn't want to do that. And or shoveling the sidewalk the few times that it snowed. So I found out in a heartbeat that I was not tough, and I'd probably better keep my mouth shut. Probably a good thing to learn. Yeah. So then how long of a break uh, before you got to start training in martial arts again? Uh, let's see. I ended up going back to Connecticut, uh, train more, and then um, – Ended up like an idiot back with my, and now that's, I don't know how much you want to talk about, but there was a lot of, a lot, a lot of backstory in between all these moves around and a lot of trauma, a lot of family issues. Uh, but I ended up back with my dad and then back with my mother and her husband back in, up here in Minnesota, uh, out in Clearwater County. And um, then I finished high school there, uh, ended up in a foster family. I don't even want to call them a foster family. There was so much more than that. They didn't have to take me in. It wasn't anything official. They just took me in and took care of me and, wow. and fed me and clothed me. And I worked. It was a dairy farm and I shoveled. Uh, I, I, I was on both ends of the cow. <laughs> I, I, I carried silage and hay to go in the front end. And when they recycled it out the back end, I shoveled that and put that out in the manure spreader. So I was, uh, I was well-rounded around the cow. And um, so... That's how I graduated high school because without them, I don't think I would. I, I had no place to stay. You know, my stepfather burned the house down. Wow. Uh, he, he left town because he was, you know, he was wanted in a lot of places. And whenever he got in trouble, he had to pack up everything and leave. That's why we left Montana. He got crossways with the law and, uh, of course, no internet. It, it took him a little while to figure out who he was. And in the interim, we took everything we had threw it in the back of a Chevy station wagon and away we went in the middle of the night. Jeez. They dropped me off in the airport at Pocatello, Idaho and said, go home to your father. Wow. You know, so that's crazy. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's been a wild, it's been a wild ride, but, uh, anyway, uh, graduated high school, joined the Marine Corps when I was 17. Uh, and the Marine Corps was great, but I squandered a beautiful opportunity because I spent a year over in Okinawa, <sighs> but I didn't train. Uh, the Marine Corps had this strange idea that because I was under contract to them that I needed to do exactly what they said, and they didn't care much what I wanted to do. And uh, I was in the infantry, but for some reason, I scored really high on my my all my tests, my intelligence tests and my aptitude tests, and they saw that and they went, "Oh, this guy can put two and two together, and every once in a while he can come up with four. So <laughs> let's 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 not only put him in the infantry, let's put him in the office too and help him, you know, have him help us here." So I was real busy, and then four months I was on board ship. We were down the Philippines and all around in the Western Pacific, and so I, I missed an opportunity to train with some really really special people over there. But when I came back, it was ni uh, 1977. Got out of the Marine Corps, went back home to Minnesota, and then I started training in 1979 again there with a guy who had connections to Okinawa. Okay. And then from there, I developed my own connections to Okinawa and was very fortunate to have a very strong connection with a, with a, with a magnificent Okinawan karate instructor from there. And which style of that from Okinawa? One of the Shorinru styles. It's, okay. uh, we, uh, it's, it's called Matsumura Kempo. Uh, my teacher developed that style from his teachings from other very, uh, very prominent teachers over there. But he ended up uh, starting his own system uh, because, sadly, even over there, there's a lot of politics involved. And uh, a, there was a lot of bickering. And some people, when, when his main teacher died, there was 
people saying, oh, I'm the number one guy. Another guy saying, oh, I'm the number one guy. And he just finally got so tired of it, he just broke away. He made his own system, and uh, he figured that way nobody could get in his way and tell him that he was wrong about this, that, or the other thing. He just did his own thing. And it's a beautiful style. Uh, I still practice every day, literally, to this day. Yeah, it's uh, politics ruins martial arts so often. That's uh, any uh, any friend I talk to, uh, any style, you hear a similar story. As far as a large scale, like a Ed Parker, Kempo type mm-hmm. thing, and, and even small local scales like that and stuff, it's just it's so it's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is sad. I've I've never known a a group to not have problems, and I, I tell people this all the time. There's two things that, that, that I know of in this world that should be beautiful, should be nothing but good, and should help a person help themselves and also help other people, and that's religion and martial arts. And the, 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 the sad truth is those are the two things that are perverted so much by yep. people because of ego, politics, money, jealousy, greed. And so you, you, you take something so beautiful and you turn it into something ugly. And again, it, it gives everybody a bad name because if one person has a bad experience, then if you tell them you're in the martial arts, that's, oh, well, I know what you guys are all about. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Right. Same thing with religion or anything else like that. So how far into your training did you start getting or, or realize that maybe you would enjoy teaching? Was that something did you, did everyone teach or is it just something you, you were drawn to for a certain reason? Well, my teacher taught us to teach. Okay. And that, that was part of our training was, was, was to be a teacher. Both my first uh, Okinawan karate instructor here in the States and my Okinawan Okinawan karate instructor also, they wanted you to be able to teach. And uh, for several reasons, obviously, yes, because that helps the style grow and stay you know, vibrant and dynamic. And also you learn so much by teaching. When you have to break something down and teach it to somebody, especially to somebody who doesn't come by it naturally, you're forced to examine it inside, outside, upside, downside, backwards, frontwards, to try and get that information conveyed to that person. So that's why they wanted it done. And I ended up getting thrust into teaching way, way, way before I should have because there just was nobody else. And um, I started teaching probably 19, assistant instructing at a satellite school in 1980. Okay. And then uh, my teacher up in Bemidji, Minnesota, ended up leaving and leaving the dojo to me in 1985. And you know, I've, I haven't, I've taught you know, ever since then. I know one thing I noticed too, as far as teaching, is I, I I go back and look at my notes from like when I first started martial arts. I've been lucky enough. I, I had an instructor that taught me to take notes and write mm-hmm. stuff down, and I look at the notes from when I was teaching for the same techniques, and it's sure. it's interesting how I describe them differently when you're teaching yeah. it versus when you're learning it. Oh yes, uh, Pat Militich, uh, a guy that I'm uh, very familiar with, I trained with him, been blessed to know him uh, as a great guy, a, a mentor. I uh, was an affiliate instructor under him for a while. Uh, he used to say the smartest guy in the room has got a got a got a pen and a notebook to write this stuff down, and it's you know, because you're only going to remember so much, and it doesn't take much to jog your memory if you write down just some key points. But if you don't have them, you're gonna you're gonna lose a certain amount of it, and that's a shame. I got to sit next to Pat at some fights down in uh, Sioux, or Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, from the, the Access TV RFA. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was commentating, and I was the judge sitting right next to him, so we got to chat in between each fight and stuff. And such nice, nice, super nice, nice guy, guy and a brilliant. 
brilliant mind. Yes. And a lot of people don't realize he had a traditional background uh, before he got into MMA. Yep. Uh, he had a traditional karate background and, of course, uh, wrestling. He's, he lived in Iowa, so you don't live in Iowa and not wrestle. Right. And uh, kickboxing, and he's a very well-rounded guy, and I think that's one of the things that led him to being as wonderfully successful as he was, not only as a competitor, but as a coach of, at the time, might be disputable, but most people will say that for, for several years, his gym was the best in the world. Oh, I would agree completely. Yeah. So nowadays with it, with as popular as the UFC has become and MMA and whatnot, so many people now join strictly MMA schools. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, do you think it's still important to, to have that traditional background? I mean, depends on what you want. Uh, if, if, if you want to be an MMA competitor, there are so many gyms out there now. That's what they do. And they teach you all aspects of the sport. So if, if that's your goal, if you want to be an MMA fighter, go to an MMA gym, but go to one that will teach you the stand up, um, not just boxing, not just kickboxing, but the, the total stand up package as it applies to MMA. And has the wrestling component in it because you have to have the wrestling either offensively or defensively. And that has a good jujitsu or some kind of a submission catch wrestling, some kind of a submission based art and somebody that can put the whole thing together. It's one thing to have the pieces and to be good at individual pieces, but to put it together in that seamless package, that's the ticket to success. And that's where a guy like Pat, he had everything in his gym. He had much underrated jujitsu in his gym. Obviously they had world-class wrestling. They're some of the toughest humanoids on the planet (laughs) were in that gym that people never even heard of people that world champions looked at when it came time to roll or spar and shook their heads and walked to the other side of the gym, hoping (laughs) that somebody else would go with these guys because they were just animals. And then of course the kickboxing, the the hands, everything. But uh, if that's your goal, go to an MMA gym and go, but go to a good one, shop around because they're not all good. They're right. not all what they say they are. And that's with any martial arts school. Yes, they're, exactly. not, they're not all good, unfortunately. Exactly. But back up a little bit, you said you, you inherited your school in 1985. Jump ahead a few years from that. How did the whole UFC thing come about? Was that something that you looked for? Were you contacted? No, that, uh, that was also kind of just dropped in my lap. I remember one day one of my karate students came in and he had a copy of Black Belt magazine in his hand and he's all excited. He was a very excitable guy and he's wide-eyed and he's, look at this, look at this. Oh my God, you've got to see this. This, this There's this thing, this ultimate fighting thing and, and, and it's full contact and there's hardly any rules and it's perfect for you and this, you need to write a letter to these people and you need, because look at that, the ad says they're looking for competitors and, and I'd, I'd learned to take this guy with a little bit of a grain of salt because mm-hmm. like I said, he was, he was a pretty excitable guy but I read it and I went, oh my God. And my eyebrows went up and I, I looked at the winner and I said, hey, he's about my size so you know, obviously, you know, you can be successful without being 250 pounds and well, yeah, and I read read the article, and I said, well, okay, I'll write a letter. So I wrote a letter to Art Davey on my manual typewriter <laughs> in 1990. See, that was 94, and so it was, it was in March 94 was UFC 2, and it was just like a month or two before that that I wrote him a letter. Put it in an envelope, mailed it to him, and got an answer back and said, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we, you know it's every, everything's full. We've got every fighter that we need, uh, but you know, I'm going to keep your letter and maybe, you know, somewhere down the line, you know, I'll need somebody and I'll, I'll give you a call. And so I thought, okay, it was worth a shot and went about my business and, uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, it was on a Saturday. I always had classes Saturday mornings. And then when we were done with class, we would go out and we would go out and have lunch together, the students and I. And then I would go back home. I was living at the dojo at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, 
no voicemail. It was an answering machine with the cassette tape in it. And uh, the light was blinking and I played it. And it says, hey, this is Art Davey. I really need you to contact me. It's really, really important. And uh, I, I want you to come down to Denver for the UFC. And I went, oh my God. I called him, but uh, he wasn't there. And so I left a message on his answering machine, which he probably had a cassette to. And uh, Monday, I ended up connecting with him. And he said, hey, yeah. He says, you know, he said, one of my, my, my main card fighters, Ken Shamrock, broke his hand. He said, so I'm going to take one of the alternates that I've already had in place, move him up into the main card. I would like you to come down and take the alternate spot. And a little bit more irony that the, 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 the uh, alternate that he brought up to the main card was Johnny Rhodes. And him and I got uh, personally introduced later on, obviously. Uh, So I said, sure, yeah, I'd I'd love to. And we're talking, and I says, well, will I get to fight the other alternate? Because I knew in UFC 1, from what I'd read, that the two alternates fought in like a preliminary bout. He said, no. He says, we're not going to do that because this is a 16-man tournament. The last one was an eight-man tournament. There's not going to be any time for that. I was a little disappointed, and I said, well... I said, under what circumstances will I get to fight? He says, the only way you're going to fight is if somebody doesn't show up before the fight or between now and fight night, somebody gets injured or sick and, 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 and can't fight. Other than that, he said, we won't need you. He said, but hey, you know, you're going to get a free ticket to Denver. We'll put you up at a nice hotel. We'll give you 50 bucks a day to eat on. And I thought, yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So I did. uh, And it it was close enough to the fight. uh, It was less than two weeks out. I think it was, uh, I talked to him on a Monday. It wasn't, uh, the UFC back in those days were on Fridays. And it wasn't that same Friday, but it was the next Friday. So it was like, you know, 13 days, 12, 13 days out. So he FedExed me the tickets and uh, I went out there. That's 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 how I got there. And then you ended up you actually ended up getting to fight. And well, that- yeah, that's that's uh, that's a whole other twist of fate. <laughs> uh, we uh, we got there earlier in the week, Monday or Tuesday, and the fighters were trickling in, and I I, I saw most of them. I saw the saw Hoist Gracie in the Gracie train, which was you would hear a rustle of nylon. <laughs> And there were the, 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 where you saw one Gracie most of the time, you saw about a dozen of them. And they all, sh- 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 they'd come rustling down there and uh, a formidable looking group. Well, they didn't mm-hmm. smile a lot. They were real serious before yep. the fight. And uh, come Thursday night, they had a press party. They, what, what I was told at that point, Art Davey came up to me and he says, hey, he said, the last, again, irony here, the last fighter just showed up, Johnny Rhodes. And uh, so the card is full. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's good to go. Fight's good to go tomorrow night. We're not going to use you. Thanks a lot. Uh, appreciate it. I uh, love the way you handle yourself. You're, you're a nice guy. I'm going to bring you back for another one. Okay. And uh, fight night came around. And the, the, originally, the, the event was supposed to be at the uh, McNichols Arena. Mm-hmm. But that got pulled because of political pressure. And we ended up at the Mammoth Event Center right. on Skid Row. And I'm serious, it was on Skid Row. There's no exaggeration. There was drunks, addicts, passed out on the sidewalk that we literally were stepping over. And the Mammoth Event Center didn't have enough dressing rooms or warm-up areas at all to handle what we had. So they rented a hotel across the road, which was... Man, they ought to make a movie that's probably not still standing, but if it was, they should make a movie just about that hotel. <laughs> no doors on some of the rooms, people wow. making drug deals in the rooms as we're going by there, and uh, it, it was incredible. So, And some of the fighters were over there 
before the fight, and some of them were at, you know, at some little corner of the Mammoth Event Center, and Art was probably growing gray hair as we were working the event. And he comes up to me and he says, hey, he says, you know the fighters, you have an idea where they're at. He said, I got to keep this thing moving because it's going to be on pay-per-view. I, I've got a schedule. He says, I want you to go, and when I tell you who I need to bring up here, I want you to go get them, bring them up here to the staging area, then go back and get the next one. I said, sure, you know, I'm there anyway, might as well. So I went out, started getting fighters, bringing them up, bringing them up. And I had just brought up Minoki Ichihara, the guy who uh, Hoist Gracie fought in his first UFC 2 bout. And I turned around and was going back, and I was going downstairs, and Horian Gracie was coming upstairs. Grabs me by the arm, and he goes, are you ready to fight? And I gave him a really stupid look, I'm sure, and went like, <laughs> huh? You mean now? <laughs> and he says, yes, yes, Hamaker hurt his hand, and he cannot fight. I need you to fight. And I went, uh, okay. And so then I had to go and find my guys. I had two guys there with me. Get get them, get my gear, my gi, basically. My gi, my mouth guard, my cup. And uh, find a place to warm up. And remember I told you about the guy that got all excitable when he showed? Well, he was one of the guys I brought with me. And he was going into orbit. He was just, just spinning into orbit. And the other guy was the actual opposite. Still a wonderful friend of mine today. I just saw him on this trip. And he grabs the guy and pulls him out away from me so I could have a, try and get a little time to get focused on, mm -hmm. on, on what was going on. Well, you know, it, despite his best efforts, it didn't work, obviously, because the main, the main thing that happened to me was I was just freaked out. I remember walking towards the cage through all the artificial smoke, and the guy's walking behind me with the camera pointed up at my face. And I walked into the cage, and I heard the clink, and I looked across, and there was this big, angry-looking dude across the way. And uh, <laughs> next thing I know, let's get it on, Big John. And uh, the, first, the first punch that hit me, first real solid punch that hit me, hit me right above my eye, mm. and it blinded me. My eye went completely white. It was like looking through a glass of milk. I couldn't see anything. Wow. And so part of what was going on that I took so much heat for, uh, when I was down on the ground and I was posted up on one elbow and had one hand up, I was trying to keep him off of me, thinking that I could clear my eye. And I remember starting to wipe at my eye, thinking it was blood, and then the, th the things that you remember are really weird. And I remember, mm -hmm. I remember thinking, well, you idiot, blood isn't white. It's not blood. <laughs> so then I thought, well, I must have detached my retina. And I thought, well, all right, let's see if we can get this thing turned around. But obviously, no, I was just too, too out of it physically. Uh, psychologically right so. i mean yeah you had less less than an hour before your fight uh, you didn't about, think you were fighting probably. about 15 minutes yeah, uh, 10 I mean, 15 minutes something <laughs> that's, like that. that's insane yeah. so then after that happened obviously went back and continued teaching him how long before you decided to embrace that and start cross training so i know and, and i mean now you fully teach you you do a lot of the cross training yourself and you've fought mma again since then yep. which we'll talk about in a bit okay um i right away Okay. Actually, I, I, you know, I've never been accused of being the smartest guy in town, and the Mensa Society recruiters are not beating down my door, <laughs> but I like to try and learn from my mistakes. And so immediately, I knew that there was more that I had to do. You know, like I said, the, the, the main breakdown was between my ears and above my eyebrows. I was freaked out. I let, I let the situation get the better of me. But if you're a good martial artist, you shouldn't let that happen. And so I, I knew I had to work on that. And yeah, I, you know, looking at what was going on on the ground and everything, I was not 
unfamiliar with joint locks. We do a lot of that in Okinawan karate. A lot of people don't realize that. We do a lot of elbow locks, wrist locks, uh, chokes, throws, but we don't do them so much on the mat. We do them more from a standing position. And our, our idea was always we wanted to stay on our feet because we weren't designed for a sport. We were designed more for defending ourselves. And in defending ourselves, we didn't want to be on the ground. But the reality is, especially nowadays, because so many people train, you're probably going to end up on the ground, no matter how bad you want to stay on your feet. Because if you think you can stop a determined wrestler from putting your ass over tea kettle onto the, onto the ground, <laughs> good luck, because you're in for a rude awakening. Yep. And, 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 and seeing all that, I, I knew that not only for myself, but if I was going to call myself a good instructor and I was going to tell my students, I'm teaching you stuff that will help you, that can possibly save you in self-defense, I had to learn that stuff. Otherwise, I'd be what I really didn't like, a phony. You know, somebody pretending to be something that they're not. So I immediately tried to find different people to work with to shore up those areas and then work on myself mentally to try and make sure that no matter what happened, I would never get overwhelmed by the event again. And the the, the thing that people, it's it's hard to understand, it's hard to explain to people. It wasn't self-defense because I had time to think, but I didn't have enough time to think. I had just enough time to think to screw my brain up. (laughs) But it wasn't like if you get attacked on the street where boom, you just react without thinking. Okay. That's one thing. But another thing when you're, you're in front of hundreds or thousands of people, however many were in there that night, and you've got the smoke and you've got the, 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 the whole thing that's so foreign to you. I've always, my whole adult life, been an introvert. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a recluse, more, more like, kind of like a hermit. I'd be a happy hermit. So being out there like that and putting myself out there was a, was a very foreign thing to me. And, and so the, the combination of all of the things that happened psychologically and yeah physically because if i'd have, you know if i'd have been really good on the ground I, I i could have maybe taken johnny Rhodes down and and neutralized him for a little bit to get my bearings back but uh back in those days there weren't a whole lot of people that could do that there was right. hoist gracie and there was a few <laughs> others but most of them no and the gracies knew that going and the into gracies it. I mean, knew that going in i mean and, i'm glad yeah. they did this and because obviously what it's led to but i mean the whole thing was done to promote the gracies and promote great gracie jiu-jitsu for the most part but it also changed martial arts it completely did. It did, and and they were right to promote themselves. Exactly, they, they they had and still have something that that's excellent. It's good, improved. They can back it up. Yeah, they can back <laughs> it up. They're not just talking the talk; they're walking the walk. And they did it back, you know, in this country in the very beginning. Yep. And uh, they always have my respect and my gratitude because they opened my eyes and a lot of other people's eyes. And I've, I've talked to Hoyce a few times since then, and he's a real nice guy. Uh, a lot of people think that he's kind of aloof or cold. He's not. He's If if you approach him the right way, he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Uh, and and you know, a great instructor. Uh, I, I've, I've seen him teach. And the whole family has, has done a world of good for all of us. So how old were you that in your first MMA fight then? 38. Okay. And how old were you in your second MMA fight? 53. <laughs> so what led to what led to that? What 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 part of you decided? Yeah, you know, I'm going to do my comeback. I need to you know redeem myself, or I've I've learned a lot more since then. What what kind of led to that thinking? Well, I was I was unsettled the whole time. Mm-hmm. I couldn't put it to rest. I couldn't get it out of my head. I mean, I didn't wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, and I didn't spend my days obsessing over it. But I was very disappointed, obviously, and the abuse that I took on the new thing called the internet um, was unbelievable and uh, and extraordinarily hurtful to me 
and uh, it really complicated a lot of other really traumatic events in my life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, at, at some point, just decided that, man, I just, it's, I just can't get this out of my blood. I gotta, I've got, what, what am I going to do? And I, I figured the only thing I could do would be go back and try it again. And I train every day. And yeah, 53 is really old to be doing that. But I didn't have a lot of fight miles on me. I hadn't taken a whole lot of pounding. I was in really good shape. And when I decided to do this, I got in even better shape. I, I had some, uh, there's a lot of really good wrestling in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I had some really good wrestlers that trained with me. And I had them put me through the grinder. Um, I sparred hard. I rolled hard. And conditioning is something that I take a lot of pride in. And so I got myself in really good condition. You actually got to prepare for this one. (laughs) I got to prepare for this one, yeah. And uh, Pat Militich gets a lot of credit because, you know, even though I wasn't training with him at the time, uh, he wasn't in my corner, I, my training techniques were a lot founded on what I learned from Pat. So I was, I was in good shape and I was ready to go. And I thought, well, the, the, the way to get this thing out of your blood is to go back and do it again. And people would, say, oh, what if, what if you lose again? And I looked at him, I said, you know what? I'd rather go to my grave 0-2 than 0-1. And people didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. If I'm 0-1, that means I never went back. I took a beating and I was scared to go back and try it again. And I, and I was hiding. And I don't hide from anything. I, I, I make a lot of mistakes in, in life and I try to own up to them and take responsibility as a man for, you know, for things that, that go right or go wrong. And so uh, being 0-2 would have been better than being 0-1 in, in my mind. And I probably wouldn't have stopped at 0-2. I probably would have went back and tried again as long as they'd, <laughs> long as they'd let me fight. Uh, and the Minnesota Commission, I think, did me a big favor by sanctioning that fight because I know they took a lot of heat for, for licensing me as, you know, at 53 years old. And how old was your opponent? Uh, he was 24. Or I think that's where a lot of the heat came from. I remember that. Yeah. I think just because they're like you're fighting a guy half your age, and they thought you were going to get hurt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. They and and on the outside, not knowing me, I can understand that. But uh, I would have willingly went to a combine of sorts or a tryout. Uh, I would have willingly underwent a much more rigorous physical um, to prove that I was, you know, not going to make anybody sorry that they licensed me. And uh, what was your, what were the results of your last MMA fight? Yeah, they were better than the first one. <laughs> I, I, I stopped my opponent in the first round. That's right. I, I've seen the video. That's yeah. why I had to ask that. It's got to make you feel proud. And obviously it, it accomplished what you wanted. Well, yes, it did. And the main thing I wanted to accomplish was, was not for anybody else. I, didn't, I wasn't out to show the world. I was out to show myself. And... I guess in a way I was out to show the world now that I, when I'm, when I'm talking about it, because I wanted to represent myself in a way that win, lose or draw, I could at least hold my head up. And I couldn't do that after UFC too. Right. My head was down. I was, I was, I was very disgusted and as hard as people were on me, nobody was harder on me than I was because I had an opportunity. I, the, it, back in the very beginning of something that grew to be so huge, I had an opportunity and I squandered that opportunity and that that part does still haunt me, that, that, that I had the opportunity to, to really make a mark and really be something special for this thing that grew up to be this magnificent sport that we have now. But that second fight was for me to be able to hold my head up and to not be dwelling on how badly I did the first time. That's great. That's a great attitude to have, though, too. So, I mean, that's, uh, I know I was very proud when I saw that. I'm like, that's awesome because you, you, you looked good. I had, I had a lot of support. <laughs> and, you know, 
people who I knew, people who I've never met. Uh, I had a lot of people really pulling for me, and and that meant a lot to me too. Especially considering the way things were not too long before that, yeah. because the the heat that I took lasted hard for about twelve years, and then it really turned really quickly. And I'm not in this world to get the approval of other people. Right. I don't live for other people. But if I'm honest, I have to say that it sure feels a lot better when people aren't kicking you when you're down and they're, and they're, they're supporting you and helping you up. And, and I got a lot of that. And, and I still, to this day, you know, most, most MMA people, they don't know who I am. They don't care. Uh, it's, it was one fight back in the, in, you know, back in the last millennium and, 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 and nobody's thinking about that, but the, the hardcore fans still, still remember and they treat me very kindly now. That's good. So just a few more questions to wrap it up. I know we've gone a little longer than we, we talked about, but uh, first question is with a traditional background and as an instructor, uh, if someone were to approach you, what type of advice do you give to a, like a parent seeking martial arts for their kids? What, any kind of tips or information you give them on, on what to look for in an instructor in a school? Well, the first thing I ask them is what are they looking for? What, what's their goal? What, what, what do they want little Johnny or little Susie to do? What do they want them to gain out of this? And then I gauge whatever my response is on that if, if if they want their their son or daughter to be a competitor then i steer them somewhere else because i you know i'm not going to make an mma competitor out of a out of a 10 year old right you know i could set a foundation for them but if they want them to compete in like karate tournaments taekwondo tournaments judo tournaments things like that then i'm not the guy and i'll i'll refer them to somebody who does and uh, right now i don't have an actual kids program so I'll refer them to somebody who does, somebody who I think would really serve them well. Okay. The, the one exception to that is I've got this kid right now. I've only literally have three students in Kansas City. I've only got three students. One of, one of them is a 15-year-old, and I met him probably 10 years ago, oh, maybe not 10, maybe about eight years ago. He was young and very small, and he's this little ginger is this this little red-haired kid, skinny, and uh, I was renting space inside of a, uh, a Jeet Kune Do Filipino martial arts okay. combination okay. school, and uh, he was training with them. And one day, about three years ago, his dad, who was extremely is extremely supportive, always brought him to class, always stayed there, watched, supported him. Uh, just a wonderful parent. He comes up to me and and, and he says, I, "I want Ethan to come and in, uh, into your Saturday morning sparring class." We used to do Saturday morning MMA sparring, hard mm -hmm. takedowns, the whole nine yards. <laughs> I, my eyebrows went up and I went, oh. "I said, you sure?" I said, uh, "I said, I promise you that we're not going to injure him." but I'm not going to baby him either. And he goes, well, exactly. He says, I don't want him babied. He says, he needs to, he needs to grow to learn uh, how it really feels to, to go hard and he needs to come out of his shell a little bit. And so in the beginning, um, we took it real easy on him and we had to, but what a kid, my God, he, he, he kept coming back and he's a sponge. He, you teach him something and he learns it so quickly. Uh, he learned the ground. I brought in a, a, a black belt, Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor Travis Connolly to do at least once a month, uh, just sp specifically uh, BJJ. Okay, and he took to that. Ethan took to that, and uh, we taught him basic wrestling, and he really took to that. And he started to crack harder and harder when we were hitting. And now he's he's 15 years old now. Um, I've put some clips up on my Facebook of him hitting the tie pads. 
And he's incredible. He's, I am real glad I'm holding pads and he's not hitting me. <laughs> and in the beginning, he, I would have let him hit me as hard as he wanted. It didn't matter. But man, he's really good. So he, he started as a kid with me. And um, as, as he got bigger and better than I and the guys, I had, had more than just three at the time. I'm down to three now. But everybody who worked with him, we would kind of raise our level just a little bit above his so mm -hmm. that he would really get, and we really pushed him, That's really, great. really pushed him so that he could realize what he was capable of and that what he was capable of was so much more than what he thought he was capable of because he, he'd be tired and he'd get hurt, not injured. Big difference between getting injured and getting hurt. Yep. And he would, he would just grit, grit his teeth. And I tell people, I said, pin your ears back, bite down on your mouth guard and go, you know, figure it out. And martial arts is beautiful. It'll teach you everything you need to know about life, how to solve problems, how to overcome adversity, how to push through pain, how to do things you don't want to do, how to how to, 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 to take a problem and turn it into an advantage. Sometimes you have to go straight in. Sometimes you have to go in at an angle. Sometimes you have to re withdraw, retreat a little bit and then counter. And that's life. That's dealing with people. That's that and that's martial arts teaches you all of that. You know, it should any true martial arts should go outside of the gym or outside of the dojo with you and become part of you and improve your life in every aspect, how you deal with people, how you do in school, how you do at work, everything should get better. And this kid is a, is a shining example of that because he does great in school. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a respectful, nice young man and he works. And, and, so, and I, I've had karate students like that too. I've mm -hmm. had several karate students over the decades that you know, I've got one now in Bemidji. Um, he's an adult now. He's a two-tour Army vet. Did a tour in Afghanistan, a tour in Iraq. Um, when he went into the Army, I told him, the Army's going to love you because you're in shape, disciplined. You've got everything that they that they want. I said, but you got to promise me one thing. And he said, what's that? I said, don't be a door gunner and a chopper because I'm Vietnam era. <laughs> yep. And those guys didn't live very long. And he listened to everything I'd, I said except for that because he <laughs> became a crew chief and a chopper in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Oh. And he survived it. Uh, but he he told me in the very beginning, he said, thank you for what you did for me. He said, because the Army is nothing compared to what you put me through. He said, this is easy for me. He said, I see other people struggle, fail, get traumatized by all these things. He said, but I'm, I was ready. He says, and it's large part because of, of, of the foundation that you laid for me all those years in karate class. So that's, you know, martial arts is life and it's beautiful. And it, it's, it should teach you to be tough and to fight, but it should teach you so much more than that too. Next question is, is there a, a favorite philosophy that you've learned over the years in martial arts? Maybe one, one or two or one specific one that stands out or that you really hold true to yourself. Shut up and train, like I said before. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, my, the name of my 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 LLC is Damai Bushi Martial Arts, and Damai Bushi means quiet warrior or quiet knight. Okay. And um, my teacher, my Okinawan teacher, one year um, I would I would I was with him every year for for, for many many years. Uh, he would come to the states. I would go to Okinawa, and one year I had to leave him early because I had just gotten a new job and I had to go back go to work before I rejoined him again. And as I was driving out, my friend said that he looked at him. He says, "I think Fred is down my bushy." And asked him and later on his son, what, you know, what exactly does that mean? I know it means quiet one, one who doesn't talk too much. And, and they said, it means somebody who's, who doesn't bullshit. So, and those were their, that's their words. Mm -hmm. yeah? Somebody no bullshit who doesn't talk, but just does somebody who maybe might know 10 things, but only shows one or two doesn't show off, doesn't brag, doesn't have an ego 
that is something that I try and live by. Uh, one of the logo, one of the, 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 the things in my logo for that company means outside soft, inside hard. Okay. And what that means, as, as uh, and it, like with most things, Okinawan, it's very deep and has a lot of meanings. And you, it's, it's really nothing that you can literally translate. But the way it was explained to me was very similar. Somebody who on the outside is, is kind, accepts people for who they are. And if somebody is doing their best, even if it's not very good, they're okay with it as long as a person is trying and they're very kind about it. But inside, they never accept that from themselves. They drive themselves. They push themselves. It's never good enough. They're always trying to improve. And I, to me, that's very important. And that's what I tried to do my whole adult life. That's what I tried to do after the UFC. That's what I try and do today, as a, not just in the dojo or the gym, but in my life so that I can be a, not only a better martial artist, but a better man and a better person, a better human being. Do you have a favorite martial arts book, either that you like reading continually or that you recommend to others? Well, um, I read a lot of the uh, books written by MMA personalities. Uh, I really enjoyed um, Blood in a Cage, which was about great Pat, book. Great of book. course, yeah. because uh, I'm, I'm a great admirer of Pat. I really enjoyed George St. Pierre's book. Really good because his philosophy, his his way of looking at things is very martial arts. It's not really very, it's not sports centric. It's martial arts because he, he says, I train all the time, not just for a fight. I train all the time. So I'm always growing, always improving, always getting better, always learning. Well, that's just like what I just talked about. Mm -hmm. and, and he, for all that he accomplished and very much on almost everybody's extremely short list for the pound for pound best that's ever been. It doesn't seem like he has an ego. And I, I really admired that. Uh, another book that I enjoyed was Living the Martial Way by Forrest. Uh, oh, I can't remember the Forrest Morgan, I think. He was an Air Force officer, and I'll forgive him for that. But uh, it was something I, I was surprised when I read that book about, you know, it talks about how a martial artist lives, what's important to be a martial artist, how a martial art artist approaches things. And I haven't read it in a long time. I just saw it on my friend's bookshelf the other day, and I thought, man, i got to read that again, because that was, that was an excellent book. So okay. I'd say those three books are, are, are books that I would highly recommend. Cool. And then uh, final question, or possibly two questions, depending. Favorites, martial arts, TV show, and or movie? Oh, kind of a, Ended on a fun one. <laughs> Sorry, maybe a guilty pleasure. Oh, God. I, you know... Favorite martial arts TV show or movie? All right, I'm going to admit that I watched Cobra Kai. Oh, I love it. It's a great show. <laughs> I binge watched both 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 seasons. I had to stay home from work a little bit because I, I injured myself. And uh, I, I put myself on the shelf because it was a head and neck injury. And so I, I, I didn't let myself go to teach class. My wife was out of town. And I thought, all right, I'll watch it. And as I expected, the karate sucked. It was terrible. Yeah. And my pet peeve is there are so many good martial artists and stunt people out there. Why can't you get somebody to do something better? But that, that show, just like The Karate Kid, wasn't about the physical rendering of martial arts. Right. There are some good storylines in there. There's some good messages in there. It's kind of fun, and it's, it's definitely a guilty pleasure. And, of course... You know, I remember back the Bruce Lee days, you know, Enter the Dragon. Yes. 
Uh, you know, those. And another guilty pleasure, in the beginning, I liked Steven Seagal. Mm. I liked, uh, like, Above the Law. That Above was the, law, the first hard thing to kill. that I saw. Yep. Those movies I enjoyed. Then after that, I was like, no, they're, no. it's not what I remember. Right. But, uh, so now one quick uh, thing on Cobra Kai. Did you rewatch the movies close to watching the series or the original three Karate Kid movies? Or did you just... No, I, I haven't watched those in decades probably you should rewatch them then watch it again because yeah. there's a lot more you'll catch yeah i'm sure that, i'm sure of that I'm i, I sure watched that. like two episodes and I'm like wait a second i need to rewatch the movie and i went and rewatched it and i caught so much more after doing that so it's but it's it's like you said it's fun it's yeah. all about fun so yeah, it's a guilty pleasure it's fun and and you don't you don't have high expectations going in as far as physically what they're going to do. Right. Well, Fred, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to do this. I, I really do appreciate you know, taking time out of your personal life to sit down and chat with us and learn a little bit more about you, some stuff I didn't know and everything, and, and uh, I truly appreciate it. Oh, so. thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists, and we'll see you next week.